0: okay let's move into our, our time of study then this morning we are of course still in the book of jude i think i mentioned at the start that uh, we were probably going to do a week or so on this but uh, i think this is now the fourth week but i there's so much here uh, and hopefully there's been a blessing as you've been going through it certainly as i've been able to teach through this uh, there's been so much that's come out there's been a reminder and a blessing and an encouragement so Let's uh, just carry on. So last time we've kind of got to look at this part of the, the letter where Jude is focusing upon the fruit. OK, so this is the fruits, uh, the characteristics, if you like, of these apostates, what they actually produce. And we remember if you last remember last time we looked at uh, the words of Jesus from Matthew 7 where he said, beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing. Just as Judah's uh, saying here that, that certain men have crept in unawares, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. And Jesus said that you shall know them by their fruits. He says, do men gather grapes or thorns, uh, of, of thorns or figs of thistles? So it's very clear what Jesus is saying here, that depending on the root, it will dictate what the fruit is going to be. And it says, even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruits. So we started last time looking at the fruits, if you like, of the apostates that Jude has been speaking about. And of course, throughout the New Testament, Paul, James, Peter, Jesus himself, all highlight that these apostates are going to come so the characteristics we looked at last time they're filthy dreamers we talked about that and their thought life and so on they defile the flesh uh, they're given over to the lusts of the flesh they despise dominion they don't like authority and people over them and that you speak evil of dignities and of course that bizarre example of michael not being willing to uh, speak disparagingly about satan himself uh, and if that's our example then we shouldn't speak disparagingly of any authority. We've got to recognize that the governments and so on are there. They've been placed by God. Uh, We should understand also that these apostates will speak evil of things that they don't understand. Well, it's no surprise then that they will speak evil of Christians who are walking in the way because they don't understand it. So they'll speak evil of that which we're doing. Uh, They act on carnal instincts. And then last time we spent the, the session really uh, finishing off looking at the way of Cain, which is the, the another one of these characteristics. We'll refresh uh, our memories on that at a moment. But we're told that they ran greedily after the error of Balaam and they destroyed themselves in the gainsaying of Korah. So we'll move on and look at those uh, second two this morning. Um, that verse 11 then, woe unto them. For they've gone in the way of Cain, ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now, Cain, we know, was a tiller of the soil. He was a working man, effectively. Um, Balaam was a prophet. He was a religious man. And then Korah was a prince in Israel. He was a political man. So there's no particular um, qualification that you need to become um, one of these uh, heretics, in a sense, that uh, Jude is speaking of. Uh, these apostates that have crept into the church they can be anybody Uh, it could be people who are well respected it could be all sorts of uh, people so there's no particular uh, class or group of people that are defined but notice again what we're told it is a progression for they've gone in the way of Cain and then we find that they're running ran greedily after the heir of Balaam and ultimately that leads to their perishing now to conclude what we said last week uh, Cain did not deny the existence of God. He, he did not refuse to worship God. He simply failed to come to God on the basis of the atoning, sacrificial shed blood of a lamb. He wanted to come to God on his terms. And he wanted to set the conditions for approaching God. And so we see that really, ultimately, he rejected God's word. And that really is the foundation of all apostasy it all begins there with rejecting god's word it goes back to the lie in genesis chapter 3 where the serpent comes to eve and says did god say it's questioning challenging rejecting the authority of god's word and of course when eve gives that response to the serpent the response is well you know you'll not surely die so again there's a direct challenge to that which god has said and this is where really all apostasy begins well, that leads us on to the next one uh, in this list that Jude is giving us, which is the error of Balaam. So let's just do a little bit of a background to remind ourselves of this character, Balaam. So we need to go to Numbers 22. And we read there, picking up the first verse, that the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side of Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, And Moab was sore afraid of the people, because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are round about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. And he sent messages therefore unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people to call him saying behold there is a people come out from Egypt behold they cover the face of the earth and they abide over against me now Pithor we find is actually on the bank of the Euphrates the river that is referred to there uh, would be the um, Euphrates river and flows down from Turkey uh, through the land what we think of today as Iraq and of course it was the river that ran by the side of Babylon and so on. Uh, but somewhere in this region is where this individual Balaam comes from. Uh, it's about 360 miles away from Israel uh, at this point, or from the land of Canaan, uh, where Israel would eventually uh, have their home. And so we read, Come now, therefore. So this is Balak's request to Balaam. I pray thee, curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail. That we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. For I, what the he whom thou blessed is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. So what Balak's saying is like, I've heard that you know whatever you do comes to pass. If you bless people, then they're blessed. If they curse people, then they're cursed. Now, whether there's any supernatural element to that uh, is unclear. It could simply be that um, Balaam was very crafty, and he knew uh, who to pronounce blessing over and who not to. Um, but either way, the impression has been clearly created in Balak's mind that Balaam has this kind of power. And so he's pleading with him, come and do this job and curse the children of Israel. And the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed. Notice this so Moab and Midian joining forces together now, and they depart with the rewards of divination in their hand. So this is what they're wanting him to do to come a finer way of corrupting uh, or tripping up Israel. Um, And they come unto Balaam and speak unto him in the words of Balak. And he said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, hath sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, which cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them. Peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now, notice there's a full stop at the end of that sentence. That really should have been the end of the discussion. And so we read verse 13. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, Uh, Get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you you kind of almost get the impression that Balaam's saying, you know, well, I asked, but I've been told I can't go. Uh, It's almost a little bit of pouting. You kind of sense there almost, particularly when you read the rest of the account. And verse 14 carries on. And the princes of Moab rose up and they went unto Balak and, and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Balak said again, yet again, prince is more and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said unto him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me, for I will promote thee unto very great honour. Now, it would already been promised to be paid for this work that he's been asked to do, but now there's this opportunity of being promoted to great honour, and I will do whatsoever thou saith unto me. Come, therefore, I pray thee, curse, this people, or curse me this people. Now, Balaam's already had his answer. Uh, but we read verse 18, And Balaam Martin has said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord. And notice what he says, my God. Interesting, isn't it? That he refers to the Lord as his God, um, but to do less or more. Now, therefore, I pray you, tarry ye also here this night. Now, this is the problem, you see, because if really God was his God, there would be no reason for verse 19 but he adds on, but stay tonight. He says, and uh, this night that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. Now, I'm sure parents, you've had a situation with a child at one time or another, when the child's come to you and said, can I do this? Can I have this? And you've said no. And so then they come back two minutes later and they ask the same question again. Your answer hasn't changed, but their persistence is quite impressive. Well, of course, the same situation here, that Balaam clearly wants the reward. There's it, no doubt about that. You see it very clearly the way this is built. And so he goes back to God, even though he's been given the answer, even though God has made it very clear that the people are blessed, therefore you're not going to bring a curse upon them. But he says, well, God, you know, these people have come. They've, they've traveled a long way. You know, can I feel sorry for them, really? Yeah, maybe could, could I just go with them? You kind of get the, the kind of gist of his prayer that evening. And God said to Balaam at night, and uh, said unto, uh, sorry, said unto him, if the men come to call thee, now notice, there's a statement there, if the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. All right. So God's instruction to Balaam is very clear. God says, if they come, then you can go. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shall thou do. But notice Balaam's response. Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass. I mean, immediately he gets up and gets ready to go and went with the princes of Moab. There's no record in the biblical text here that the men of Moab and the Midianites, this confederacy that have come, these princes, these uh, officials that have come on this business of Balak, there's no reference or mention that they actually come back and ask again. But, right? um, so it simply seems to be that Balaam here is kind of jumping the gun. He really wants to go, uh, and so he kind of sees this as his opportunity. And so immediately he gets up in the morning, gets his donkey ready, and off they go. And God's anger was kindled because he went. See, so see, this is why. If you read it without, if you kind of read it casually, you might miss the fact that actually there was an if there. If the men come, then you go. Well, they didn't come, but he went anyway. And so God's an- anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass, and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand. And the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. So this donkey kind of veers off the path to kind of avoid this angel that's standing right in front of them on the path. And Balaam's unhappy about this, so he strikes uh, this donkey but the angel of the lord stood in a path of the vineyards a wall being on this side and a wall on that side and when the ass saw the angel of the lord she thrust herself onto the wall and crushed balaam's foot against the wall and he smote her so once again balaam now getting really frustrated with his donkey and then verse 26 and the angel of the lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left and When the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with his staff. So he gets off and he starts beating this donkey. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten thee these three times? Now, at that point, if a donkey starts speaking to you, you've got to recognize that something is not normal in this situation the first bizarre thing here is that Balaam engages in conversation and Balaam said unto the ass because thou hast mocked me I would there were a sword in my hand for now I would kill thee and then the donkey asked Balaam a question It's is a bizarre situation but the ass said unto Balaam am I not thine ass upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day and was I ever want to do uh, so unto thee so the donkey saying you look like you've had me ever since i was as a young uh you know colt and, and now i've a uh, full donkey i've been with you the whole time have i ever behaved in this kind of way and donkey, and balaam thinks about it and i love this response so the donkey speaks to balaam and balaam says nay I, you just got to see the, the the kind of the irony in that um there um verse 31 goes on then the lord opened the eyes of balaam and he saw the angel of the lord standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down his head and fell fat on his face. Uh, At this point, you think Balaam's really should be giving this donkey an apology. But, you know, verse 32 goes on, And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? God asked the question, you know, why were you cruel to your faithful donkey? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? God effectively speaking to Balaam and saying, your way is perverse. What you are doing is an abomination to me because you are rejecting my counsel, my advice. What you are doing is for your own ends. It's very clear as we start to see this. And the ass saw me, this is the angel still speaking, and turned from me uh, these three times, unless she had turned from me, surely now also I had slain thee and saved her alive. Balaam realizing quite how indebted he is to this donkey. And Balaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Interesting, isn't it, that we have this kind of almost repentance here. But you see, the repentance really is not as genuine, not really sincere, because the the comment is, I know I've sinned, because if I knew you were going to judge me, well, I wouldn't have done it. But well, that's not really repentance. That's just simply saying, because I've been found out, you know, it's like, I guess, poor example, maybe, but getting stopped by a, a police car for driving too fast. Uh, ladies, you'll just have to imagine this, gents, you may have experienced this sometimes yourself. But, um, you know, if that kind of thing's ever happened, you know, there's no point pleading with the police and say, well, if I'd have known you were there, I wouldn't have gone so fast. You're kind of missing the point. You know, you shouldn't have been doing the speed in the first place. That's really the scenario here that Balaam's kind of repenting and saying, well, if I'd have known you were there, it would have been very different. Uh, And he says, "Um, if it displeased thee, Balaam says, I will get me back again. Now, even then, there's clearly this element on Balaam's part. He's not saying, you know, I recognize that I've sinned. I'm going to turn around and go back. Now, he's not doing that. He's simply saying, well, if it displeases thee, I will get back again. If I have to go back. You know, you see this kind of grumpy uh, response. And the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. And when Balak heard that Balaam was come, he went out to meet him unto a city of Moab, which is in the border of Arnon, which is in the utmost coast. And Balak said unto Balaam, did I not earnestly send unto thee to call thee? Wherefore came it not thou unto me? Am I not able indeed to promote thee to honor? So Balak's saying, you know, I've always sent messages. Why did it take you so long to come? I'm going to give you loads of stuff and make you really wealthy. This is exactly what Balaam wanted to hear. Balaam said unto Balak, lo, I am come unto thee. Uh, have I now any power at all to say anything? Uh, the word that God put in my mouth, that shall I speak. Balaam went with Balak, and they came unto kerjath Hazoth and Balaam offered oxen and sheep, and sent to Balaam and the princes that were with him and He came to pass on the morrow that Balak took uh, Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal that thence he might see the utmost part of the people, okay, so get the picture. Balak brings Balaam now to the top of this very high vantage point, looking down on top of the people, the children of Israel, and looking down on their camp. Now, I can't resist just taking you through this because it's so fascinating. What did he see? As Balaam and Balak and this multitude that are gathered with them look down on the children of Israel, what would they have seen as they look down from above? Well, I need to understand a little bit about the way the children of Israel camped. Of course, we have in the center, right in the center, if you see that uh, rectangle right in the middle of the screen there, there was the tabernacle. Now, around the tabernacle, we had the Levites. They would camp around the sides of the tabernacle as they'd been instructed by God. Now, going out from the tabernacle, we would then have the people and that they would camp also. And the way the camp was laid out typically... Um, you'd have three tribes camped on each side of the tabernacle. But the directions they were given were very precise. So you have the on the, the, the west side, the east side, the north side, the south side, uh, going directly out from this area where the Levites were encamped around the tabernacle, the tribes. And Ephraim Ephraim had the uh, one of the standards, and there were two other tribes with him. The total number of them were 108,100, uh, the tribe of Dan, also 157,600, two other tribes making up that number, Uh, the tribe of Judah, 186,400, all kind of camping, and and again, from the details you are given in uh, numbers, specifically they'd have been coming out, they wouldn't have camped in the area southeast, or northwest, or so on, it would have been exactly in the cardinal points, going out and spreading out away from the tabernacle itself, and then finally you've got the tribe of Reuben there, 151,450. Now, If you were to map it all out and look at those numbers and then look at that from the air, this is what you would see. So as they look down upon the camp of Israel, they look down on the camp in the shape of a cross. Now, what you do with that, I don't know, other than recognize God's fingerprints. You see, people like to look down Disparagingly upon the cross. They like to bring cursing and so on upon that which ultimately is the one thing that can bring blessing to them. God had already said through Abraham that those that bless you will be blessed. Those that curse you will be cursed. Now, if Balak and the Midianites, the Moabites and Midianites had recognized that, if they'd have recognized that by blessing Israel, that they would have been blessed then, well, it would have been a wonderful end, wouldn't it? As a result of this, God's judgment ends up coming upon this king and upon Balaam and so on. It's detailed, obviously, in the book of Numbers for us as well. But it's, again, just an interesting aside that people love to to look down on that, which ultimately was the thing that could have brought them blessing. But from this vantage point, what happens is that there's three attempts now by Balak to get Balaam to curse Israel. The first one is at Kerjeth Hazoth, with high place of Baal we've seen. Uh, that's in Numbers 22. And then from the field of Zophim, the top of Mount Pisgah, that's a mountain we've already referred to. It's that place that Moses climbed and looked over at the land uh, later on. And uh, that's in, again, Numbers twenty-three, fourteen, And then the top of Peor that looks towards Jeshimon. And uh, that's Numbers 23, verse 28. Now, of course, we're talking about the era of Balaam. Uh, and of course we've seen already that God speak about his way being perverse in the book of revelation we're told but I have a few things against thee Uh, this is the the church of um, um, Pergamos uh, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam and now we get a bit of information that's really helpful who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. Now, this isn't what we're reading at the moment. This comes a little bit later because, from those vantage points that we just mentioned, Balaam pronounces only blessing upon Israel. But after that event, clearly not wanting to miss out on his reward, Balaam then says, I tell you one way you can trip them up, King Balak. And he says, Oh, tell me, how do we do this? He says, Well, Can we get them to commit fornication? So they end up sending their uh, young Meribah women to this uh, border of where Israel were camped uh, and they start getting them to intermarry, uh, to have relationships, to commit adultery, fornication uh, with the children of Israel. And so this is exactly what he does. And through that way, he actually causes Israel to come under the judgment of God, the wrath of God, as a result he thought this would then destroy Israel uh, he was of course wrong because he thought God would curse the whole nation no but that's not the case God did bring judgment on those who, were sin- who sinned and there was 24,000 that died as a result of this but we're told very clearly in scripture that mercy triumphs over judgment and God was not going to bring cursing upon his people or bring judgment on the whole nation because of this situation those that sinned were judged Actually, that's kind of a theme here through the book of Jude. He's talking about those that live carnal lives will not just get away with it. Uh, Even as Christians, you can't just live as you want and expect to have no repercussion. Nehemiah 13.2, later on, we read this statement that Moab hired Balaam against Israel, that he should curse them. How be it our God turned the curse into a blessing. You see, the error of Balaam, was not understanding god's grace you see god is not mocked but he's a gracious god See, god did judge those that sinned but he's a gracious god and balaam did not understand that he wanted the reward in any way he can and he thought this would be the way that israel will be brought down now as a result of this he does give these three um separate pronouncements which total seven prophecies in total from these different locations the first prophecy was that israel would not oh, sorry would they would dwell alone and not be reckoned among the nations that's been prophetically fulfilled incredibly um, Israel are the only nation the only democracy in the Middle East and yet they're the only one that are not invited to, to take a seat on the UN Security Council it doesn't make any sense uh, we have nations that harbor and support terrorists that are allowed to sit on the UN Security Council but Israel are not um, you'll recognize I'm sure you're aware that many Arab maps don't even have Israel on the map they don't reckon them they don't recognize them as a nation so just as that prophecy from Balaam uh, was pronounced so it's true Uh, the second prophecy with Israel will be without number well once again the prophecy to Abraham was that it would be as the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky third prophecy was Israel's end will be in blessing and of course so many scriptures confirm that will be the case the fourth one was that Israel's descendants will be in many waters in many nations well of course because of the um, situation with firstly the, the Syrian and the Babylonian captivities, and then ultimately with the Romans when Israel were forced out of their land in AD 70, and then finally by Emperor Hadrian in about AD 132, Israel were forced around the world. And so, there we have that expression the wandering Jew. All these things have come to pass. The fifth prophecy Israel were to, destined to have a king higher than all the nations. Well, once again, we know that to be true that Jesus will come and sit on the throne of david and will rule over the nations the sixth prophecy was israel will be victorious over their enemies And once again many prophecies confirm that is going to happen and then the seventh one blessing and cursing will be promised to the nations in fact matthew 24 i sorry matthew 25 jesus there speaks about that blessing and that cursing uh, to the nations when he returns the sheep and the goat judgments it's all around the premise of how The nations have treated Israel as Jesus's brethren, those that are blessed and have fed and clothed and looked after them and visited them in prison and so on. Those nations will be blessed. Those that have not will be cursed. So that gives us the background, the detail of this uh, era of Balaam. So in a sense, it was a twofold thing. It was that love of money, that looking for reward, but just misunderstanding the grace of God. Then we move on to the gainsaying of Korah. So this is the third of these three examples that Jude now gives us, and we read now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram. So this this little confederacy we got Kohath, Dathan, and Abiram. These three, uh, the sons of Eliab, uh, and on. Uh, the sons of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, they took men. So they got a group of people together and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel. And we're told 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. Now, notice, first of all, these are people that have position. They have respect. They have people that look up to them. And yet we get this account verse 3 goes on and says and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them you take too much upon you seeing all the congregation are holy every one of them and the Lord is among them wherefore then lift you up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord now this is the challenge you know but who was it that had lifted up Moses and Aaron in the first place well it was God God had appointed them and given them this responsibility. It was God that was leading and directing the nation, and he had chosen to do that through Moses, and obviously Aaron then supporting Moses in this ministry. These individuals had been given responsibility, but clearly it was not enough. They wanted to have a share of the vote, the leadership, and so on. They wanted to be able to dictate uh, their own agenda, uh, and they didn't like it that Moses was in this position. Now, this has been a common call throughout church history. The who gave you authority kind of question. Uh, Jesus was asked the same kind of thing. And it's so often those who are ordained by men who question those who are ordained by God. You see, the established church today has many people who are ordained, but they've been ordained by men. The question is, have they been ordained by God? ordination from man means absolutely nothing in the scheme of things ordination by God means everything and this is the problem that Korah wanted to have this position he didn't recognize the authority uh, and this goes back to very much what Judas already said about these um, individuals that they despise authority they don't like having people in authority over them And of course, it comes back to the root of all these things, which is pride. It's what led the devil to sin in the first place. And Proverbs 13, verse 10, says, Only by pride cometh contention. See this contention? Where did it come from? It came from pride. Pride in Korah's heart. That was the real problem here. Now, it's interesting when you look at this, if you look at the family, of course, coming down from Jacob and Levi, obviously the 11 tribes, from Levi's family, he has three sons Gershon, Koath, and Merari. And then we come down. Uh, from Kalath's line, we have Amram. Uh, and then he has um, some brothers as well. Um, Amram marries Jochebed, uh, his uh, wife. And then they have their children. They have Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. Aaron marries uh, Elisheba. And then they have children, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithmar. And then Moses, um, oh, sorry, uh, going from now from Ishar's line. So this is um, from um, um, Aaron's father of Moses and Aaron's father's brother so this is the uncle of Moses his children are or included amongst them are Korah which obviously sure you make the connection means that Moses and Korah were cousins they were family they were related to each other and so Korah is saying come on Moses you know you're nobody special you're just my cousin why are you in this position and it's interesting how this family link is there Uh, We read on. And when Moses heard it, he fell upon his face and he spoke unto Korah and to uh, all his company, saying, even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy and will cause him to come near unto him. Even uh, him whom he has chosen, he will cause to come near unto him. And then Moses says, listen, this dude, take your senses, Korah and all his company and put fire therein. I put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow and it shall be that the man whom the Lord choose he shall be holy you take too much upon you you sons of Levi is Moses response in other words you're wanting more than you've been given you're not content with the boundaries that God has set with what God has decreed you know there's a number of examples in scripture we could give of this type of situation the tribe of Dan is one of the classic ones when the land was being allotted in Israel. The tribe of Dan were given a reasonably large portion and it was right by the coast of the Mediterranean. But they said, this isn't enough. We want more. And so they're given a second piece right at the top of Israel. And of course, it was the tribe of Dan that went first into idolatry. The simple lesson is, if you are not content to stay within the boundaries that God has set for your protection and for your blessing, then it will ultimately lead into idolatry. We have to respect and whether we understand fully why God has set boundaries sometimes, that's not the issue. The point is God has set boundaries and he is God. And if we stay within those boundaries, whether it be in regard to relationships or attitudes or whatever it is, there's all sorts of things that God has given us boundaries uh, and those boundaries need to be respected. And Moses said unto Korah, here I pray you, uh, you sons of Levi, uh, seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. See, Moses is saying, look, you've been given an incredibly privileged position by God. Why is that not enough for you? And he's brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi with thee and seek ye the priesthood also. She they've already been given a, a really important role, but they wanted more. Uh, For which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you murmur against him? And Moses sent to call Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that flows with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? <laughs> Interesting. Notice they refer to Egypt there. Is it not a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that flows with milk? I don't recall ever reading that Egypt was flowing with milk and honey. That was where they were going under the leadership of Moses. Uh, to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us. They're challenging Moses here. Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with, with milk and honey. Well, no, not yet, he hasn't, because there was this problem they had at Kadesh Barnea where a bunch of them chose not to go and they led the whole nation away. Or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards, will thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. <clears throat> In other words, he's saying, you know, Do you expect us just to look the other way? You know, you've not given us the blessings that you said. We've not come into the promised land. Well, again, that wasn't Moses' fault. That was down to the people, and God had more caused them to wander for 38 years as a result. And Moses was very wroth and said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. Uh, I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And Moses said unto Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron tomorrow. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord of the, uh, sorry, the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell upon their faces and said, "O oh God, the God of all the spirits, sorry, of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will Thou be wroth with all the congregation?" See, so notice the humility and the compassion of Moses here. This is a mark of a true leader, really, that he seeks God and says, "Lord, don't destroy the whole congregation on account of what Korah has done." And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, "Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up." from about the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you. By the way, just notice that. I do like that line. The elders of Israel followed him, that Moses went and the elders go with him, showing support to Moses in this situation. And he spoke unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, And touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed with all their sins. And so uh, they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents, and their wives, and their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, "Hereby you shall know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind." If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. So, in other words, If they die a natural death, okay, this is nothing to do, you know, just maybe what you're saying is true, that I've been uh, just on a some ego trip. But of course, that wasn't the case. Verse 30, but if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up or, with all that have unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord uh notice again he you should know that the lord has sent me to do all these works see god has used moses incredibly but think back to egypt and all the things that were accomplished by moses hand uh seemingly those things have been forgotten at this point by Korah and his uh, compatriots and it came to pass that as he made an end of speaking all these words that the ground clave asunder and that was under them and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up And their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods, they and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. So that's the account we have back in Numbers. So what is it that Jude is really trying to get us to see from this? Well, Korah did not regard that which was sacred you see as we have already highlighted he was from the line of Kohath he was of the Levites and but then pertained the service of the most holy things you know but he wasn't content with what he'd been given he had no appreciation for the spiritual he didn't recognize the blessing the privilege that had been entrusted to him again simply looking for worldly gain and position so Let's have a look then Jude's analysis of these apostates. Well, firstly, they reject God's word. We've seen that. They do not understand his grace. And then they don't appreciate spiritual things. They, quite simply, want to come to God on their terms. They want to enjoy worldly pleasures. And they want position and recognition. Those are really the key lessons that come out of this. And so the lesson that Jude is teaching us here is that these apostates, people that will be within the church, you know, at large, we should expect to see these things. We should expect to um, see these people because they have crept in unawares, but they are there now. People that want to kind of come to God on their terms. They try and reinterpret God's word to suit themselves. You know, they don't have an understanding of his grace. And so they'll live however they want to. And they'll tell you it's okay, and that God's all right with it. And obviously, if they want to, they can just repent and God doesn't mind. You know, that's not the gospel of grace that we have recorded in Scripture. And then, of course, they have no understanding of spiritual things. They don't recognize the value in the things that God has given, the things that hopefully, prayerfully, you and I treasure of God. And again, they just want position. They want recognition. They want to be seen to be special in the eyes of men. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said this, verse 1. Take heed that you do not your arms before men, your good works, to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine arms, thy good works, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men, verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, when you do good works, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. You know, do it in secret, effectively, that thy arms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall himself reward thee openly. This is a really clear lesson that Jesus gives, and it's one of humility. Don't brag, don't boast about what you've accomplished or what you've done or the good things that you've done. Leave it between you and God. God sees it. You don't need to gain favor with men. You don't need men to pat you on the back and say, well done, you're doing a good job, and look at what you've accomplished, and aren't you a lovely person? That's what Korah was looking for. You know, and just as with Cain, You know, Cain wanted to approach God in the way he wanted. He wanted to receive blessing from God on his terms. And of course, Balaam was just looking for profit. He was looking to get something out of this. And again, not understanding the grace of God. You see, God wants to bless us. We're told that God can give us exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. You know, do you honestly think that Balak could have given Balaam any more than god could have given him in terms of blessing you see all balak could have done was give him material things things on a worldly level but the blessings that god brings are so much greater and they are eternal in value in matthew 6 it reads on verse 5 and when thou prayest thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou press, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father, which is in secret. And thy father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. You see, again, these individuals um, that are in the church, they, they want to be recognized, they want to be appreciated, they want the pats on the backs God says, no, the the important thing, what really matters is your relationship to me. The good works that you do, you're not doing for others. You do it as we're told, as unto the Lord. You know, do everything you do as unto the Lord, not unto men. This again comes back to that Mary and Martha kind of situation. Um, If you remember the account with uh, Mary and Martha, uh, Martha was cumbered with this great load of care, Mary was the one that was sat at Jesus' feet. You know, sometimes we're so busy doing things that we want to get some recognition. Uh, we want people to appreciate uh, the effort, the work, the labor that we put in. But ultimately, what matters is that we sit at Jesus' feet and we worship him. It doesn't matter what other people perceive. It doesn't matter what we do. And, you know, and if we're working, if we're doing things for the Lord, just as Martha was, the important thing is that we're not doing it for other people. You know, if you do that which you do in ministry for recognition from others, you'll be quickly become disappointed. You're not doing it for the recognition of others. You're doing it because you want to do it for the glory of God. Yet one of the things I've always said within the fellowship is that the things we do, we should do because we love God. And that's the only reason we do it. Whatever service we bring, it's only because we love God. It's not because We are doing it for each other. You know, of course, if we love each other, we want to bless each other. And that's right. And that's proper. And we looked in John chapter four about loving the brethren. And there's some clear instructions there. But ultimately, the things that we do, we should do simply out of our love for Jesus Christ. You know, and I think every one of us is astute enough spiritually to recognize that we can never give him enough we can never give enough back for all that he's done for us and you know if you approach ministry with that mindset that we're doing it just for Jesus you will never grow weary you'll never grow tired of it you'll never feel the weight of the burden if you approach ministry in the sense that you are serving other people then it will become tiring it will become a burden You'll get burnt out. You'll get drained. A number of times people have said to me about the, the, the pace that I, I do things at uh, and the workload, you know, but truthfully, I do what I do because I love God. And I don't say this is any sense of spiritual pride or anything else, because all I give is what I've been given. It's freely I've received of the Lord and freely I give, you know, and that's the way we should minister. What God has given to us, we give to others. But we do it because of him. We do it because of the love we have for Jesus. And so if we have that mindset and that approach, we never put ourselves in that position of Korah where we're looking for position or promotion. doesn't matter. That's not important. God will promote if he wants. If he doesn't, then that's fine. You know, God has us where he wants us. It's God's house, as it were, that he's building up. And we're living stones being built up together. And wherever he places us, that's absolutely fine because it's for his glory. Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Father, we just thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for these lessons that we've been able to look at in regard to apostates that exist within the church, even today, Lord, to recognize their characteristics, that we won't be deceived by them or led astray or fooled by them. But Lord, help us to recognize that these things can rear their ugly heads in our own lives. And Lord, that these characteristics can be there, that we can be like Cain was, and want to come to you, sometimes on our terms, bringing our good works. Lord, sometimes we can be as Balaam was, and feeling that we should be rewarded in some way for our effort, getting something out of it. Sometimes, Lord, we may be like Korah, thinking that we should get some sort of recognition. But Father, all of these things are worldly, they're fleshly, and they have no eternal value. Lord, help us to recognize that you are the one who has called us, you have told us that we will bear fruit if we are connected to you as the root. And so, Lord, help us to live lives that are honouring and glorifying and pleasing to you and you alone. Lord, and then the overflow of that will be that our lives will be a blessing to each other too. We just ask you to do this work in us. In Jesus' name. Amen.